Something strange happened in 2020. Firstly, the year of 2020 was very strange. But uh, I also happened to discover a musical group that I fell in love with hard and fast. And that musical group is Bee Gees or the Bee Gees. And the Bee Gees are a trio of brothers from England who got their first hit in Australia. If you know the Bee Gees, you probably know them from the soundtrack to a movie. Where do you go when the record is over? John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever. And this became one of the uh, all-time best-selling soundtracks and uh, kind of cemented the Bee Gees as a disco group. But there was just so much more to that. It was only in 2020 when I kind of pieced this together. I was listening on Sirius XM uh, radio to the 60s on 6, and I uh, heard a pretty cool track. And I thought, you know what, that's a great song. Then I looked down and it happened to be Bee Gees, and I said, wait a minute, Bee Gees, the same people that, that did Staying Alive, Staying Alive, aha, aha, Staying Alive. Then I said, wait a minute, well, if I like them over both of these decades and with both of these styles, maybe they're pretty darn good. And maybe they're a lot more than just Staying Alive, Staying Alive, aha, aha, Staying Alive. And so then I, uh, I dived in to uh, The Ultimate Bee Gees, which is a, uh, an anthology collection that I think is expertly curated. I haven't stopped listening since. And oddly enough, right when I, I was at peak Bee Gees listening, you know, I was using it to mow the lawn. I was, you know, opening a restaurant. And the Bee Gees became this sort of soundtrack to my 2020. Oddly enough, HBO released a documentary called Bee Gees, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart? What a beautiful, beautiful title and a beautiful song. And I thought to myself, I wondered, why Why now? Why in 2020 did I suddenly become a Bee Gees fan after a whole life of not really caring? And why now do we have an HBO documentary? That's a big time wonder. This is Warner's World of Wonders. And it made me wonder, why did it take me so long to figure out that life is better with Bee Gees in it? And what is it about the Bee Gees that makes life great? So I decided that I would uh, head out as a man on the street, with the street, of course, being Twitter. And I would talk to some people about what exactly make the Bee Gees great and why the Bee Gees make life better. But before I head out into that digital street, a word from our sponsors. All right, so check it. Curdbox is this monthly cheese and pairing experience that comes delivered straight to your door. Each month, you get a new and unique theme with an edible story of sorts, right? It's a curated selection of three artisan cheeses and three things that pair with it. You can check out the Curdcast. It's a podcast with Jen Mason. Jen's kind of like the big cheese of Curdbox. I'm sorry I had to do it. Anyway, Jen's going to give you a guided tasting through the whole box. So that way, when you decide to eat it, you can just kind of regurgitate the things that Jen said and sound amazing. Make sure you sign up at curdbox.com. This meeting is being recorded. Seemingly, we have another Bee Gees fan on the line. Who are you and where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Mary Ferguson. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Amazing. Uh, are you a fan of Bee Gees? I am a huge fan of the Bee Gees. I would actually go so far as to say that the Bee Gees are probably the first band that I could truly say that I like deeply loved as like a young child. <laughs> wow. 
as a kid, you're not a kid anymore, correct? No, 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 no. I'm 35. I'm happy to say that. Oh, tight. <laughs> okay, great. I, I don't feel so bad. I'm, I'm 37. So um, this is good. This is all very good. As a kid, like what, what led you to Bee Gees? And, and, and like, why? Give me the, the origin story. What was the radioactive spider that bit you? So my parents are both big Bee Gees fans. My parents, like my dad more so. I mean, he kind of grew up in the disco era. One way that they would entertain us is every afternoon after we like woke up from our afternoon nap as children, they would put on the two Betamax set of the Bee Gees One Night Only live from Sydney, Australia. <laughs> and we would reenact it. Like we would take turns each being like a different character. And there were like, you know, there's a group of us. It was my uh, my brother, my sister, and then some of my cousins. And so we would be like the backup dancer or like Phyllis St. John or like, you know, the, the you know, and of course, like the, the main three, like Barry, like everybody wanted to be Barry, but we'd have to like rotate because we're kind and we share. And so we just grew up on their greatest hits, essentially. They're timeless. I mean, I still love them now. I mean, Nights on Broadway comes on any single time. I'm playing it on repeat. It's never on just once. So good. The anguish. So good, right? Yes. The emotion. The key changes. Amazing. (laughs) So I I have some questions. Um, First off, uh, thank you for saying the word Betamax. Uh, I haven't (laughs) heard that word in probably years. I also love that you said that they are timeless, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, the name of their chronological uh, album, uh, Greatest Hits album, Timeless. Uh, so that was just a, a, a strange choice of words and a good one. But my question for you is, you said everybody wanted to be Barry. Why? I know it was probably a source of tension for them all. It probably, like off stage. I'm sure, having that large of a personality might have made things difficult for those around him, but he just has so much gravitas, you know, like he's so fun and he just kind of has like the best lines and the falsetto. Like I think Robin, I mean, all three of them have lovely voices, but Robin kind of has that. There's like a vulnerability to that voice that maybe as like six year olds, you don't understand how to appreciate, but Barry was like larger than life, you know, like, Everything he did was fun. He like cracked all the jokes. He was you, there, like, you knew there's a great obvious sense that he was the front man. I see. So is, is Barry your BG? You know, I think Barry started out as my BG. I think getting a little bit older and like coming to terms with the fact that I'm typically kind of an introvert. I'm more, I think I'm more of Morris. Really? Yes. Yes. He's, he's happy to play his role, you know, at, at, at the back and, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm more him. And he, he's kind of like a quiet jokester. You get that energy from him. Like you could kind of see him like there was one point in the concert when he didn't feel like he had very much to do. And rather than like being resentful about it, he went and took one of the cameramen's cameras and started filming the rest of like the rest of the band in the back oh. of dancers. And so then they had a second camera that was like filming him doing this and he was having a great time, you know? So just kind of being that like low key, flexible energy. I, I love that. Oh, it's, yeah. this is so um, magical. And I'm, I'm <laughs> jealous. Uh, I'm jealous that you had this experience. Um, and the reason that I want this is because I'm a, a relatively new uh, Bee Gees fan. So maybe some could even call me a poser. But what I have I determined, never. 
We welcome okay, everyone you. to the BGs family. <laughs> Got it. Ah, oh, shucks, I feel so welcomed. Um, so <laughs> here's what happened. So I'm a big fan of 60s on 6, which is a channel on Sirius XM. And uh, I had this moment where I realized, uh, holy moly, the, the same group that sings uh, I've Gotta Get a Message to You, which is a somewhat grim song, or New York Mining Disaster, also kind of a grim yeah. song. It's the same cats that sang, you know, Night Fever, Night Fever. You know, like this is nuts. And so I put on the ultimate Bee Gees. This is last year, uh, which is their greatest hits album, which I think is kind of magical. And I realized, holy moly, I love every single one of these tracks. I love the way that this greatest hits album flows. And I could literally listen to this every single day for the rest of my life. And if I had my way, uh, I would. So my question is, why in 2020, in the midst of pandemic and, you know, grim and gloom, what was it about it that that clicked in me? And then why also, coincidentally, was there an HBO documentary made? Why is now kind of like peak Bee Gees? I have some thoughts about this. Okay, so I think... Lay them on me. <laughs> arguably, one of the Bee Gees' strongest eras was that disco era. And I think part of what makes their songs so relatable is their exuberance for life, regardless of what's going on around them. You know, so even something like "Staying Alive," like the lyrics to "Staying Alive," it's like I—they're—they're they're kind of—I wouldn't say grim, but they sort of paint like a tough picture. But this guy's a survivor. You know what I mean? So we're all out here. The world might be falling apart, but I'm here, and I'm going to have a great time. You know, and I think that's kind of the energy that people are looking for right now. It's tough but we're going to make the best of it and I'm going to have a great time. And I think too, the documentary kind of goes into sort of like the fall of disco and how it never really quite got its due. But I feel like in the last couple, five to 10 years, maybe a lot of these same sounds are coming back in other bands like that. You know, I mean, you, obviously the Foo Fighters are like covering BG songs, but then you have people like you know, Dua Lipa, you hear a lot of disco and even like the Killers and like some indie rock and indie pop bands. These beats are coming back and just kind of becoming more trendy. And I don't know if that's just the cycle of nostalgia, but people are starting to realize like, oh, it used to be super fun to hate the Bee Gees and their weird pants and like all of their satire, but legitimately it's good music. It's fun music. I think people just like that confection. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, maybe there was an era where it was like cool to be, intellectual and so cerebral about your music choices but we like life is short if something sounds good to you and it's catchy go for it love it it's okay <laughs> right just blame it on the nights on broadway <sighs> yes exactly <laughs> this meeting is being recorded nice to meet you justin oh thank you yeah very nice to meet you too who are you uh where are you calling from I am in Bullhead City, Arizona. It's right across from Laughlin, Nevada, on the Colorado River. I see. And who are you? My name is Cindy Getz, as in Cindy Getz, whatever she wants. Oh, wow. Uh, so, Cindy, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm going to get straight to the point. In 2020, uh, you know, we all experienced the pandemic and isolation. And there was a brief moment where I was uh, mowing the lawn. And uh, I needed some music in my headphones. I determined that I would play the ultimate Bee Gees, which is 
the greatest hits, uh, I think the best greatest hits compilation of the Bee Gees, I kind of uh, fell in love. So my question, first question for you is, why are the Bee Gees so gosh darn good? And f- also, let me say that. Do you say <laughs> the Bee Gees or do you simply say, why are Bee Gees so good? Because I think officially they are not the. Officially they are not, yeah. Okay, so you're confirming that as a super fan. I am confirming it. They they are Bee Gees, but I always say the Bee Gees because they're the Bee Gees. <laughs> but they always use just Bee Gees. I see. So um, why are Bee Gees so gosh darn good? I wish there was a simple answer to that. They're just, um, their music is so eclectic. It, it goes through each generation. Um, you you got a good sampling of it from that album that you listened to, The Ultimate. But there's actually so much more. There, every genre, you can find every genre, even rap. They even experimented in rap. Wait, who was rapping? Which BG was rapping? Uh, it was Barry that was rapping. He was actually rapping the titles of his hit songs. So it was pretty cool. Oh, man, I have to dig this up. I have to dig this yes. up. Yes. If you can pinpoint a moment in time or a specific song, what do you think was your Gateway BG's track? Okay, I can tell you exactly what it was. I was 12 years old. And I saw the video of How Deep Is Your Love. It just came out. They didn't call them videos back then. But I, I saw that and I'm like, wow, what is this? And that was the day that I fell in love with Bee Gees. I love it. How Deep Is Your Love was the very first song. I really need to know. Yes. Yeah. And it still holds a special place in my heart. Oh, man, that's fantastic. What I think really triggered me for the Bee Gees or for Bee Gees was uh, I heard, you know, everybody everybody knows Staying Alive. I want to say I had like a meaty file of Staying Alive in high school. Yeah. And then I heard, I want to say New York Mining Disaster uh, on 60s on 6 on Sirius XM. And I couldn't believe that this is the same group that did Staying Alive. Like, they, they are diametrically opposed tracks. Yeah. I, that's what amazes me. Every decade, they sounded different. And I think, is this the same people that are singing these songs? It's just amazing. It's all different genres, like I said. What is your favorite track if you had to pick one you know you're on a an island that somehow has speakers and and one track is on repeat um i like to listen to deep cuts uh-huh. i don't go so much for the hits i mean the hits are great and everything but i go for the deep cuts and there's an album that they did after all the the mayhem of saturday night fever and everything and it was called living eyes and it wasn't very very a very good hit commercially, but I think it was one of their best albums. And there's a song on there called I Still Love You. That Robin sings. Robin's my absolute favorite. Robin's my favorite. I'm definitely a Robin guy for sure. Oh my gosh. That song just goes right through me. I just love it. And I could just hear it over and over again. 
Uh, I love this. I'm going to add it to my list. Uh, what is it about Robin that makes Robin Robin? And why are Robin people Robin people? Because I'm a Robin person. Uh-huh. There's no voice like that. And there never will ever be a voice like that. It's just, it, it just goes right to your heart. That vibrato, it's, it's just absolutely astounding. And the way he sings it with such feeling. Yeah, I know. Uh, there's a, a live version of a track. Where is the sun that shone on my head? There's something about, you know the track I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> there's just something about that that voice that just is just, yeah, so so penetrating and so emotional and so soulful. It's almost a, an inhuman sort of thing. And I, so I'll, I'll play the ultimate Bee Gees album uh, on, at my restaurant uh, for my staff, whether they want it or not. <laughs> I do the same at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like subjecting them to greatness, you know? So like it's without apology. <laughs> you know, after, I guess we've been open for three months now. So after three months of uh, this constant Bee Gees barrage, I, I'm always shocked at how many, you know, random staff, you know, people that are far younger than myself will will be singing along uh, to these tracks. And there's a track, they, they wrote Islands in the Stream for yes. Dolly Parton and Kenny Loggins, right? Kenny Rogers. Kenny yes. Rogers. That's right. That's right. Okay. You know, m my age is showing. Um, <laughs> but then that was sampled uh, by Aaliyah. I'm sorry, I'm Robin. I'm or uh, Cindy. I'm going off the the rails. It says Robin's iPhone on on the screen. So yeah, see how that's how obsessed I am. <laughs> really, you're you're that obsessed with Robin that your phone yes. is named Robin's iPhone. Yes. Yes. Wow, incredible. <laughs> so anyway, the greatest hits, which has uh, a live version of Islands in the Stream, which was uh, written for Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, correct? Actually, that song was, wasn't was written as a country song. It was written as an R&B song. Oh, really? But then, they got, but then they got Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton to sing it and turned into a country song. And then it then turned into like a, a hip-hop song when it was sampled yeah. uh, in Ghetto Superstar, correct? Yes. Ghetto Superstar, that is what you are. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. Like, who freaking knew? And like, what? I mean, can, <laughs> it just, it blows my mind, Cindy. Like, I'm, I'm literally holding my head right now. One song, three genres. I mean, can you get more talent? Uh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Who's better? <laughs> Bee Gees or Beatles? Uh, you know, that's a, um, a universal question. There's a lot of people that ask that. And I think they're both great for different reasons. The, the Beatles were just, they opened the door for everybody else. There would be no music like we know today if it wasn't for the Beatles, including the Bee Gees. But then again, the Bee Gees were such innovators themselves. So it's just, I think it's kind of an equal footing. Equal footing. I like that. Wait, so Cindy, you're such a fan. You've named your iPhone Robin's iPhone because you're... I named my youngest son, Andrew. For Andy Gibb. <laughs> no way. I kind of tricked my husband into it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, wait, so were you an Andy Gibb fan? I mean, this could be a whole second podcast just talking about Andy Gibb, but. It's, 
well, the whole Gib clan, it's they're all the same, but Robin just like he's elevated higher for me. Yeah. And, and so word on the street and the street being Twitter is that you have a, a BG shrine. I do. Can you walk me through this? Talk me through this. Well, you know what? Actually, when I was younger, when I first started liking them back in the 70s, they were everywhere. I always um, pictured it was like uh, Beatlemania when it first started, because Everywhere you went was Bee Gees. Every magazine, all the commercials, every talk show, everywhere was Bee Gees. Every 10 minutes, a Bee Gees song on the radio. So what it was, was in my room, in my bedroom, I had, my walls were covered. I had about 10 posters in a like nine by 12 room. And I, I had all kind of memorabilia that was irreplaceable. Necklaces, belt buckles, books, magazines. I've had it all. And then one day um, it just disappeared. And I don't know what happened to all that stuff, which would today be worth thousands of dollars. I even had a lunchbox. <laughs> oh, man. I, it, so, I, I'm going to go on eBay right now and get myself a BG's lunchbox <laughs> because it is cool. It's cool. So in my restaurant, I threaten, and I'm not, I'm not joking about this threat. It's not an idle threat, but I want to do one of the bathroom decors as like 16 year old heartthrob BGs. Yeah. Decor. That's what I had. Oh, I'm so jealous. But then I don't know what happened to all that stuff. So uh, now my husband confines me to the little corner in the living room. So I have my little shrine in just this little corner and I'm not allowed to make it expand any anymore because the whole house would be filled and it wouldn't be fair to him. There's a moratorium <laughs> on BG's building. I, I, I know. I understand. <laughs> because it was a trickling to the pillows on the bed. And <laughs> I thought, well, that wasn't fair to him. So I stopped and I just got that little corner in the, in the living room. <laughs> Amazing. Right now I have a uh, life uh, magazine, I want to say, or maybe it was People Magazine, uh, just did a the stories, the story of the BGs, like it, standalone issue that I like found it at Safeway for a ridiculously yes. high price. You have it, you yes. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I opened it up and I saw a discrepancy, and I closed it up and put it in the <laughs> trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Cindy, wow, wow. We we could not have gotten a better guest. Yeah, I, I, um, my kids always tell me if I met Barry Gibb in person, I would correct him. <laughs> you remember that wrong, Barry. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so I guess the uh, the the final uh, question is why in 2020, in the midst of pandemic, in the height of this, when we're all kind of collectively uh, losing our mind, why did the BGS resonate with me, and then in turn? Why is it such a grand coincidence that an HBO documentary happened to premiere uh, in in roughly the same time of my discovery of how fantastic the BGs are? That documentary was excellent, and I'm really critical about all, all things BGs. It has to be perfect, but that was very well done. I was very impressed with it, and I think it uh, converted a lot of people into BGs fans. But it's great that you discovered them and you're a fan. It's good to see young people grasp how, how great they it, 
um, I don't even know how to put it into words. When you're listening to him, it's like infectious. You have to like it. It's just infectious. Well, my friends, there you have it. The Bee Gees sound is infectious. Uh, they are eclectic. They span generations. And when you get it, gosh darn it, you get it. Tons of people see them as just a disco band, but as you just heard, they are much, much more. But I was the man on the street talking to fans. Let's talk to someone who's not necessarily a fan, but an expert. We're going to dive into the history of the band and the cultural impact of disco and the Bee Gees. But first, so that we can properly understand what we're about to talk about, a little segment we like to call Justin's Jargon. But first, a word from our sponsors. You might not know this, but my father was a psychologist and I am a big fan of psychology and Noom has a psychology based approach. So it, it kind of works to like rewire your brain and, and give you kind of the tools and empowerment that you need to make a change naturally. Within the first 10 minutes of using Noom, I kind of was able to figure out more about myself and more about the world around me than really any other app that I've used in recent years. You know, Noom uses science, Noom uses data. And so 80% of users end up completing the program and more than 60% of users uh, lose 5% or more of their body weight. Uh, I was just using it to kind of maintain and make some healthier choices in life. And uh, seems pretty gosh darn easy. Just devote like 10 minutes a day to it. If you want to start building better habits for healthier long-term results, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash Justin. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash Justin. Welcome now to Justin's Jargon, where we will rapid fire learn about some terminology that we are about to use. Okay, expert, who is Barry Gibb? There were three Gibb brothers that made up the Bee Gees, Barry, Morris, and Robin. Barry is the first, the eldest, the most talented, and he led the Bee Gees throughout their existence. And he was a great pop songwriter. So Robin Gibb was his brother. Uh, what was Robin's primary role? Robin's primary role was a singer and a songwriter. He, Barry and Morris were both excellent musicians. Robin was not really a musician, but he was a great uh, harmony singer. And he was also the complainer in the band. I see. And Morris? Morris was like um, Brian Jones in that if he could touch it, he could play it. And he was a really gifted bass player and keyboard player and songwriter and harmony singer. Unfortunately, at about the three-quarter mark of his career, his alcoholism made him unable to play. He later got clean and went back to playing. But in his prime, he played most of the bass parts and most of the keyboard parts on the Bee Gees records. Wow. So the Bee Gees are known for falsetto. What is falsetto? You know, my understanding, which is slight, is that falsetto is a way that male singers engage um, the breathing from lower in the lungs and the emission from higher in the throat and the nasal passages to sing octaves higher than they would sing in their normal range with normal breathing and normal vocal expression. An example would be like when I talk to my dog. I use a falsetto. Yes, exactly. I should hope so. <laughs> of course, the dog's so cute. Uh, and then uh, just some clarification and, and to kind of bring us back to the time. Are you familiar with Betamax? Sure. What is Betamax? 
Uh, Betamax was the loser in a two-horse race in the technology where, uh, war for home video recording. Betamax and VHS were the two formats for home video recording. Betamax was the technically superior uh, format, but it was marketed in a way that didn't, didn't enable it to compete with VHS. It had better sound, it had better picture, it had smaller tapes, but VHS triumphed and Betamax vanished. What is a gold and platinum record? A gold record is a record that, um, at least back in the day, earned a million dollars in revenue. And I think the rough standard at the Bee Gees time was a quarter of a million units. A platinum record shipped a million units. Wow. And Saturday Night Fever was something like seven times platinum. Wow. So on that note, what is Saturday Night Fever? Saturday Night Fever was a movie with John Travolta that made him a star and broke disco huge in America. And Saturday Night Fever was the Bee Gees double soundtrack record that had other artists on it and was for many, for, I mean, for a decade and a half, the greatest selling record of all time. Wow. How uh, would you describe disco as a, a music genre and then in turn uh, part of culture? Can I reverse my answer? Of course. Um, the cultural aspect of disco is that it is was the latest incarnation in the culture of people dancing to records and not to live music, which when people began to dance to records toward the end of World War II was a radical idea. And a lot of underground and gay clubs in the 50s and 60s played records, not live music, because they were underground. And disco evolved out of the gay and underground clubs in New York and London, and the beat, the disco beat, that bass beat, you can track that bass beat to Freddie Graham, the genius bass player in Sly and the Family Stone. And if you play Sly's record fresh, you can hear Freddie Graham first playing that uh, disco beat. And the disco beat is, you know, like, like the pogo. It's what white Americans love. It's an unchanging dance beat to which even the least rhythmic person on Earth, Earth can figure out how to dance. Epic. Um, man, you're good. Okay, one last <laughs> question, um, and it's maybe a big one. Uh, okay. What is psychedelic rock? Psychedelic rock is music that came out of the uh, mid to late 60s that was, had two basic principles. One principle was the music attempted to recreate the psychedelic experience, mostly the psychedelics of being on LSD, and or the music was played by people who were on LSD. And so psychedelic rock generally was not driven by rhythm. It was not dance music. It was driven more by lead playing and melody. And you know, the, psyched, the great psychedelic practitioners were the Grateful Dead, always comes first to mind with their long jams. Uh, the bland Blue Cheer, the great hard rock band, was a psychedelic band. You associate psychedelia first with the San Francisco sound, and those are some of the San Francisco bands. I have just spoken with people, with fans, uh, with those of you in sort of a digital man-on-the-street sort of way, if the, the street was Twitter. Uh, and now we have an expert. So, uh, who are you, and why are you an expert? Well, my name's David Meyer. I write about film and music. I'm a cinema studies professor. 
my I wrote a biography of Graham Parsons that got a fair amount of acclaim. And I wrote what I think you would call an unauthorized biography of the Bee Gees. So I burrowed really deeply into their lives and music. So kind of the uh, thesis for this podcast is that uh, I recently, uh, say circa 2020, uh, discovered uh, the album The Ultimate Bee Gees, which is a collection of uh, most of their hits. And uh, it's it's very beautifully arranged and it has become kind of like an everyday listen uh, for me. And I've noticed that my life is better with the Bee Gees in it. Do you feel that way? Well, you know, I think our demographic dis- difference means that for me, the Bee Gees were always a constant. Mm. You know, that there wasn't a discovery of the Bee Gees because the Bee Gees have been on the air in the world for me since high school. I don't even know how to raise that question. There are aspects of their music I really love. There's aspects of it that are utterly ridiculous. But for their great songs, I'm grateful. Ah, I like that. So um, where, did, where did your curiosity of, of Bee Gees begin? You know, it, there's um, a quote in my book where an English rock critic said, to really appreciate the Bee Gees lyrics, you have to forget the Bee Gees wrote them. Because in their early days of pop stardom, they just looked so ridiculous and so badly dressed, trying so hard to be hip. And you always have a sense that the Bee Gees' noses were pressed up against the glass of like grooviness, just peering in, trying to see how people were cool and not being able to suss it. And their early song lyrics are so filled with pain and heartbreak and alienation but they're not sung in that way and they don't have the arrangements of pain and heartbreak and alienation. So that's what really drew me. And of course, a lot of their early lyrics are memorable and make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so that's really um, drew me in also. One of these songs uh, that that strikes me as utterly, utterly depressing yet somehow beautiful is uh, New York Mining Disaster, 1940, what is it? Two, maybe? Yeah, and what is that song about? Please tell me. <laughs> um, I mean, my interpretation is that it's a beautiful song about being trapped in a mine. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. Yeah, that's just so fascinating to me that you can have this song that's, I mean, about one of, like, you know, that's a nightmare, like fever dream, but it's absolutely beautiful. And I heard, and uh, I don't know where I heard this, but they wrote that song while, uh, being trapped in a, a hallway. They got locked in a dark, dark stairwell, I think, or something like that. Uh, do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's all I know, is they wrote it while trapped in a hallway. <laughs> and the, the other thing about it is that the harmonies are just so beautiful, and the hook, you cannot get the hook out of your head. And that's so early on, but it really shows what a genius of hooks Barry was. Um, so when you say hook, I think I know what you're talking about, but but can you describe what a hook is? You know, the hook is that part in a chorus or a verse that you just sing over and over and over that you can't get out of your head. That is the, the hook of the song, the thing that hooks you. And all great pop songs, all great pop songwriters have a great hook. Staying alive, staying alive, ah, ha, 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 staying alive. You just, you just and, and that's what makes a great pop song. You can't, just can't get it out of your head. Let's talk about uh, the success of Saturday Night Fever. And uh, can you give us some context on what is Saturday Night Fever? Because um, it was really only recently that I decided to, to watch it. And uh, then also, how, how did 
Bee Gees make this jump? Like, and I'm, I'm curious if you have any insight on how they are able to jump from kind of like genre to genre, decade to decade, and and still, you know, to crank, you know, like it, it's and still be the Bee Gees. Yes, and still be Retain the Bee Gees. Their sound all the way through. All right, let, I'll start at the beginning. Please. Saturday Night Fever came from an article in New York Magazine that was written about a dance club in Queens where all these working class kids in Queens would get super dressed up and go in and dance to disco and enact all these rituals of sexual attraction and dominant submission. Who was the coolest guy? Who is not the coolest guy? And it was written by a great English rock critic named Nick Cohn. And it later turned out that the article was entirely fiction. He made it all up in his living room and he based all his the behavior of the kids on the behavior of kids in mod clubs in England 10 years earlier. But the Bee Gees producer, Robert Stigwood, Stigwood and everybody else loved the story, had no idea he'd completely made it up and bought the rights to it and then developed the film Saturday Night Fever, you know, that made John Travolta a star. And it's a, John Travolta is a, a working class kid who is the best dancer in his pathetic little club in Queens and yearns to go to Manhattan. You know, a classic showbiz dream story, except that you've seen the film, right? Yes. It's unbelievably dark. Yeah, it's super dark, extremely depressing. And yeah, and like uh, just like almost Shakespearean on its like level of tragedy. Like it's. Yes, violence. Uh, ambition thwarted, death. And so the Bee Gees, when the film was being prepared, were in the studio in France that Elton John made famous as Honky Chateau. Because it was in an old crumbling chateau in the boonies of France in uh, Aeroville. And, you know, David Bowie recorded there, millions of bands recorded there. And they're in the midst of doing songs and Robert Stigwood flew there and told them about the script and then left. And then they came up they altered songs they had been already doing and then came up with ideas connected to the script and wrote it all in the studio. And the song, um, Staying Alive, has a historical distinction. It's the first ever drum loop. Huh. Because their drummer's mother got sick and he went back to England to be with her. And they recorded one beat of his drums and they had a 30-foot length of tape and they ran it over mic stands and empty tape reels, circled the whole studio with it, and ran it through the record heads. No one had ever tried that. And they did it first. Wow. So what you're describing is kind of like the thing that um, is now like a drum loop is like the one of the fundamentals of, of uh, pop, dance music, EDM, hip hop, etc. Drum loops and are crucial so you're telling to rap. Me- you couldn't have had rap without drum loops, especially <laughs> early hip hop. Yes, they invented it, and at, as analog as it could possibly be. And so they, they had been listening to dance music, and Barry always liked dance music, and they had made records with dance tunes on them under the great soul producer, Arif Martin. And they just, they recorded these songs in a complete vacuum. And nobody had any expectations for it. And it was, at the time, the greatest, the biggest selling record of all time. You know, it had, it was on the charts for something like 280 plus weeks. And it had spawned like seven number ones or seven top tens and four number ones, something like that. And, you know, this was a long time ago. And if you wanted that record, 
you had to go to the record store, take out your wallet, put your money down, pick it up and carry it home. They didn't sell all these millions and millions of copies by pushing a button. So it just speaks to how popular this record was. And when it came out, disco was actually on the way. And this record brought disco back with a vengeance. With a vengeance. I love it. So what then, um, you know, how, how does one get out of disco? Because I can see transitioning <laughs> from like the 60s stuff saying like, okay, I need to re, we need to reinvent. We need to get, get back in the studio and come out with a new thing. Right. But, but when you have something, you know, I, I'm a chef. I don't know if you know that about me, but one time I made a foie gras donut. It was immensely popular to the point where I, I eventually said to myself, you know, this thing is either going to be the death of me or they will put it on my tombstone as this great thing that I did. And I kind of realized that like, I'm going, people are going to be asking for me to make this for the rest of my life. For good reason. Yeah. Yeah. So how does one get out or how did the Bee Gees rather get out of disco? My answer is sort of simple and complicated at the same time. We love those around here. Barry is one of the greatest pop songwriters in the history of music. You know, Barry wrote 21 purpose-built number ones for other artists. And he wrote To Love Somebody when he was 21, specifically for Otis Redding. And Otis Redding died before he could record it. And it's the greatest Otis Redding song that Otis Redding never sung. And you listen to it now and then play Otis, you just instantly think, how could a 21-year-old so understand Otis Redding and then write the absolute perfect song for Otis to sing? And I think it's just a measure of Barry's genius as a pop songwriter that he understood when the wave has passed. And he's never run out of ideas, ever. And so, you know, you say of some artists, well, they, they self-consciously grow and they understand that they need to change. And, you know, the Beatles had, in terms of years compared to the Bee Gees, a relatively short arc. But you can see them always striving, always attempting something new, always moving forward. We could name hip-hop and jazz artists about whom that's true. That you feel them consciously attempting to move ahead, as you said, with your donut. It'll be on your tombstone or you need to move beyond it. Or, or incorporate it and build on it. But that seemed a very natural process for Barry. Morris and Robin stayed more fixated on certain specific ideas and certain specific ways of producing those ideas. But Barry just kept changing. And I never had the sense that Barry was the sort of person who was, I have to step to a new artistic level. You know, the, the Sergeant Peppers versus whatever came before it. Or I have to retrench from this complexity to something simple, like the records after Sergeant Peppers. For me, it was just Barry was a pop omnivore and a pop genius. I don't think a rock genius, but a pop genius. And just always had new songs. Impressive. So impressive. Um, let's talk about something that I think... Uh, separates uh, Bee Gees from a lot of other pop groups, especially male pop groups. And that is the incredibly uh, high-pitched singing. Uh, we have a very chatty cat uh, in my house. And uh, we, we claim that the cat learned to speak from, from listening to Bee Gees because there's, there's, I could 100% see how my grandfather would call uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack caterwauling. Yes. What is the deal? Well, you know, they were, they were harmony geniuses, and you could make the broad generalization that 
the greatest harmony singers in the history of rock and, rock, rock and pop and country were siblings. You know, the Leuven brothers in country music, the Everly brothers, you know, and, and the Bee Gees. Kids that had sung together from their earliest days. And I think that their move into falsetto and vibrato was Barry, what Barry's way of chasing the sound of soul music at the time. Mm. And that wanting to escape the sort of um, deeper, more bass-like, profoundly white sounds of their earlier pop stuff. And you can tell from Saturday Night Fever that he was listening to a lot of MFSB and the Philly sound produced by the producing team Gamble and Huff that had a lot of high-pitched high range singing and the string-driven dance beat underneath it. And you think about Minnie Ripperton at that time. So I always thought their moving into those high voices was an attempt to sound more soulful. And also, they could do it. Um, so you touched on something that I, I wanted to, uh, to explore just a little, and then I have one final question after that. You said that, you, you know, arguably the best harmonizers uh, our, our family. Why? Why do you think that? Is it something about DNA? <laughs> I mean, proximity? I've thought about that a lot. And I, I, think, I think DNA matters, proximity matters, and of course, repetition matters. But I, I, I've come to think it's just instinct, that they know one another so well that, I mean, let's say Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris, two of the great harmonizers of all time. In the, in the scant footage that exists of them, you see Emmylou Harris singing harmony with Graham. She is staring fixedly at his mouth every second because she wants to get the harmony exactly right. So she's both listening, but she's staring at his mouth to make sure she's totally on it. You watch siblings harmonize. They don't do that. They know where their siblings are going to go. So it's some kind of ingrained instinct from singing together for so long. And because I think they all sang for fun before they ever sang for work. And they know how to default back to that connection. So um, I guess kind of the final question and, and ultimately my, my ultimate wonder of this is, what is it about Bee Gees and now that makes life good? I think it's a, a really good question and a really rich question. I think one thing is that we're all such synthesis now. We all listen so broadly and so deeply to everything. It's, you know, it's very rare to find somebody who loves music who's a niche listener. And so I think we're all have a better grounding to contextualize and understand the Bee Gees, even if we never heard them. And I think also we're much more grounded and surrounded by dance music all the time than any other time in music history, even in the height of the disco era. You know, there's so much dance music ever. How many hip hop channels are there on Sirius? Aren't there like six or seven hip hop channels? And there's, there's at least five dance channels. I mean, like there's even a hip hop workout channel on Sirius. So it's just that dance music's everywhere around us. And we're really grounded in it. And the Bee Gees made some of the greatest dance music of all time. And the other thing I think that makes the Bee Gees make life good is brevity. You know, like the Bee Gees have a really wonderful, like psychedelic workout song from the 60s. It's their big psych blast off. It's two minutes, 58. 
You know, Barry was not going to write a song that was 301. He just, he was never going to do it. And their dance hits are all made to be played on the radio. They're all short. They're punchy. The hooks are right there. And I think that makes it nourishing too, because there's no BG song where you're like, okay, finish it. Be done, would you please? You, you want to hear the whole song because it's 259. Well, my friends, uh, there you have it. Life is indeed better with the BGs in it. And uh, I'm mighty thankful for their vast collection of music spanning so many decades and so many styles. Uh, I think life is better with disco. I don't think I'm wrong about that. I know that uh, plenty of people are not fans of disco. I think that a little disco here and there can really spice things up. Their music caused the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever to be one of the highest selling records of all time. And uh, as you heard, one of the uh, very first drum loops is contained within that song. But to me, I think the reason that the Bee Gees were so great for me in 2020 was because it was a rough year. And whether you're a mother or whether you're a brother, we were staying alive, staying alive. Feel the city breaking and everybody's shaking. We're staying alive, staying alive. Ah ha ha ha, staying alive, staying alive. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see. It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. Have you seen? Warner's World of Wonders would like to give a special thanks to our guests today, Mary Dakuma, Cindy Getz, and then finally for our expert, David N. Meyer. Warner's Wonders, signing out. <laughs>